came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. And I am Ksenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Okay, welcome to another episode of Disasters Deconstructed. Hardly a day goes by without us seeing a picture of a disaster or a crisis, either in a newspaper or in social media or on TV. Most of the time, these images portray damage or death. So they really do influence the way that we understand disasters. And today we have just the right guest to discuss this with us. Charles Fox is a photographer and researcher who works between the UK and Cambodia. His work has been published in the Sunday Times magazine, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, National Geographic, Wired, and many other outlets. And Charles um, has also worked extensively with various NGOs, including UNICEF, ActionAid, um, and Care International. Welcome, Charles. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Nice to, nice to be here. Thanks for your time. Thank you for coming. We have so many questions for you. This is great. You're, I think, the first photographer we're talking to on the podcast, so it's very exciting. Uh, okay, so no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> no, never. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So in your projects, um, you're exploring the legacy of conflict and colonialism, looking at different aspects of this legacy and also at how the current day is affected by the rulings and actions of the past. So please, can you tell us a little bit about your photographic work and also how did you end up working in Cambodia? Cambodia really happened by chance. Um, it, my me being in Cambodia came a, a point in the life when um, I had a lot of expanding thoughts about this, the idea of my practice in photography, and um, and in many ways I, I, I really did fall into Cambodia, um, and that was through working for a, a newspaper, um, an English language newspaper called the Cambodia Daily. I, I used to freelance for them, and and really that. What I started to understand and learn not only about photography but about Cambodia really made me stay for a, a long time and kept revisiting. And I think those those early years of working freelance for this newspaper really sort of influenced a lot of how I, I work work today. I mean, at the time I was looking at single images. You know, I'd be working with a journalist and I'd be going out and photographing a specific event or a specific scene um and my work would be illustrating you know the words of someone else or i'd be hearing things translated through um a third source and in many ways that was really informative but i also found problems with that um and, and from there the process really started to develop what i didn't realize then and what i really realize now is that how much my work was sort of defined by genre you know i was working in you know, photojournalism, um, and there are there are some great aspects to it, but there are limitations. You know, as I say, 
I was working to a news agenda. I was working to a journalist's agenda, and I had very little, you know, freedom. There was the the act of making the frame, which was, I suppose, creative, but um, I didn't. I wasn't really able to expand on on these themes that kept recurring and that I kept seeing in Cambodia. These legacies of um, of conflicts and genocides, and, and how they sort of impacted and touched upon daily life. Um, so, and yeah, and photography in a way was a way of exploring that. Um, and and then I then I started to grow um, my my thoughts on on photojournalism, and, and actually left Cambodia for a while. I went away for a few years, about three years, and I went and did a degree in photojournalism and came back and started working in a much more individual um, way, longer-term narratives, and trying to understand the points that I found um, early on working for the newspaper. So and did longer-term narratives, really, um, such as bomb divers. And I, what, I, what I became really conscious of is that my time with people was very limited. My, um, my interactions with people were, you know, fleeting. Um, and I wanted to find a way that was mm. more engaged and spend more time with people. So, you know, language became a thing. I, I still study Khmer to this day, um, although it has moments of being good and, you know, not so good. But um, so language became important. And with bomb divers, I, you know, I spent four years working with a team of D miners who, who were basically trained to dive and clear the rivers of explosives, these legacies of conflict. Um, and, and they came in various forms. Mm. They were um, they were from um, boats which were supplying the Long Nol government um, before the Khmer Rouge, which were then attacked by uh, which were attacked by the Khmer Rouge and sunk in the rivers, or they were you know remnants of um, American bombing raids um, along the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which were then also bombing across Cambodia. So this legacy of conflict still remains, and and so I followed these guys for four years and. Um, produced probably the you know the largest piece of photojournalism that I, I'd worked on, um, and there was an intimacy in that because I I did what what was more important to me that it became about this contact with people. But when it came to pushing the work out there, what I realised is the is is how it sort of how it was presented and how it ran um, and it was bombs and it was explosions and it was conflict and it was drama and I, I can't deny I didn't shoot you know my framing was influential in that but actually you see it really missed the point what the work was about and it was about this Cambodian resilience you know this ability mm -hmm. to adapt and change I mean you know how you learn to go from how you even learn to you know demine um, takes an incredible individual then to learn to dive 30 meters in the pitch black to raise bombs out of the water that's another level of resilience um, and I think the work sort of was seen as quite macho you know I think conflict crisis is sometimes seen as quite a macho sort of thing and um, and I I don't know I, I just started to move away from that um, I mean, you have to, there's a really interesting photographer, Tim Hetherington, who unfortunately uh, died uh, in Libya. Um, but he talked about this idea of this feedback loop 
um, in photographing conflict and crisis and the idea that young men in combat act in ways that emulate the images they see in movies, you know, mm. the way that they held guns like Rambo mm. and these sorts of things. So there's, there's a perception of conflict and crisis and and I think, you know, it is perpetuated in media and it is perpetuated in the way people represent themselves. But these guys didn't do that. So maybe that was my, maybe that was me who made it this sort of, you know, you know this macho sort of thing. And I'm, I'm the least macho person you'll ever meet. So mm-hmm. I started to question the way in which, you know, these these things were represented. And I just tried, I shifted my methodology of my approach into other ways, really. So Charles, let's um, talk about framing and representation because very often when we uh, see images of crisis or disaster, those images are focused on destruction and death, right? Instead of some of the um, real root causes of those disasters. And like you said, the, the deeper story is about strength and about people's capacity, you know, and, and so on. So... Um, we're often told that this is because these images have an emotional impact and you need to create an emotional bond with your uh, those who are viewing your imagery. And also, of course, they sell, right? They, they make people look. But what is the impact of always communicating about disasters through this kind of shocking imagery? I think it's, it's I mean, it's, it's how we view crisis and how we view conflict um, and actually how much people actually now engage with these images. Um, I mean, that was it for me. I, you know, we see horrendous scenes. You know, we only have to look now, you know, at what's going on in the States to see, you know, um, the way that, you know, black lives are being represented in the media and, and events that are going on and, and, Sometimes it's it's really difficult with we 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 can place so much emphasis on these single images you know that we see in newspapers and they are they are important you know they're, they're important images to see but there is you know I sometimes think we have too much of an expectation of what photography can do you know we place so much emphasis on these single frames um, and. I say they are important, but there's sometimes more nuanced ways of conveying conveying complex issues. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, do we view a crisis as the event itself? You know, do we just focus mm-hmm. on the timeline, the, the very instance of that timeline, or do we do we find ways of expanding the thought and, and the conversations surrounding it? Um, and they're just two very different ways of approaching it. And I think for me, it was more of a way of if you spend a long time working on something, you have to find a new, a more nuanced way of approaching a crisis or a conflict. And I think that's an, an evolution of, of practice, but also reaching out to new audiences um, and not being, you know, reliant on the typical ways of, of, um, of conveying as we and you know as as you rightly say and, and i said it earlier you know there are images which sell there are images that you know make front pages and they they do so because they're high drama high stakes um 
And I mean, we cannot deny the, you know, the skill of the photographer. They, they are often beautifully composed. Well, that's difficult, really, because mm. they are often quite traumatic scenes. Mm. So, I mean, I, I, what I can't do is, you know, criticize what what some photographers do. You know, people approach things in very different ways. But for me, I, I had, I, you know, I, I learned a lot from working in photojournalism. But I think these images of events and these individual responses, we we place too much on them, and we expect them to convey too much of a message. Um, and and we need to find other ways. I mean, John Vink is a photographer who I really admire, um, and he said there's a really interesting quote by him where he says, you know, I believe indeed that photographs don't change the world. It is the people who read photographs who do or are supposed to do that. Um, mm. And I think I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it, that um, how we respond and how we react to images is more important than, than what we think the image actually does on the page. Yeah, I want to pick up on what you said about um, the event-specific focus of some of our, I guess, some of our narratives, the ways that we frame disasters, but also the way that we maybe photograph disasters, because uh, it's something that recurs on our podcast for sure, and some of the conversations we have, and just in, in the f- field of uh, researchers generally, we, we try to explain and better understand how disasters are long-term social processes, not mm. just um short-term events right and so yeah i think this is a a really good point that you made about um the common narratives being focused on a on an event a disaster as an event Mm. and that's part of the reason why we have this this kind of shocking imagery so um you know as in our podcast we're trying to help people to get to root causes of disasters and the kind of core issues at play when we're talking about risk. How do you translate that to uh, photography practice? You know, what, what, how do you create a good picture, one that actually tells a story and makes people think about deeper issues? I mean, from my perspective of us as a maker, um, what, what I quickly found was a, a dissatisfaction of working within the single image mm. because because of the points raised earlier about the specific framing, you know, the intent of the journalist, you know, the intent of the the protagonist, the multiple things which sort of limit it. And as I say, you know, one, I don't think one picture conveys stories well. It gives us a, it shows us, you know, it shows us a framing in time, but mm. you know, we can't ever take these things as truth, right? Because it's so subjective, the way in which, they are framed and viewed in that moment in time. So that was the thing that took me away from events, so mm. to speak. Not to say there isn't value in it, but for me as a practitioner, I had to find a way of conveying, say, in the context of Cambodia, um, more more in depth and nuanced ways of looking at photography, which didn't necessarily just relate, just didn't mean that I was the one making the pictures, but moving into a place where we use, you know, where I looked at archival images, for example, as a way of conveying things, or if we move away from the idea of the event itself, well, then we drop into this idea of late photography, you know, photographing, you know, after an event, um, how, how do you represent what has gone on before when 
you know, for example, with Cambodia, when over 40 years have passed, you know, with, uh, with the Khmer Rouge. So I think when you start to understand where images fail, then you can really extend how you work with photography and work with individuals to, to grow the conversation. You know, and as you say, you know, the event is one aspect, you know, of, of the conversation, but, but there is a multitude of other framings that went on during that time, which, which led to that. And I, and I think that's where it moves into a more of, of an investigation and, and a research sort of approach. And I guess uh, these are the kind of images, or this is the story where that you're portraying in your book, right? So in, in your book, Buried, you're presenting an intimate portrait of one family experience. And also you're talking about, or you're presenting the significance of image. What, what were you trying to achieve, I guess, through the book? You know, what narrative um, were you able to tell your reader that you wouldn't be able to tell without a photograph? Buried, um, buried was a remarkable process because what, what led to buried appearing was actually my sort of fall away from working in looking at questions photographically through photojournalism. And I, um, I, I started working with found, uh, with family archived images. So I set up found Cambodia. Um, and this was sort of, we go back to the idea of the event. Um, I, I was interested uh, in whilst events were happening in Cambodia's history. Let's you know, I mean, say for example, the the UN, United Nations uh, intervention into Cambodia in the early two thousands. You know, the images we see from that are you know UN soldiers and um, arms being handed in. But I was interested in what was happening in day-to-day -day life. And we could see these, you know, parallels between the event and then, you know, day-to-day um, -day life existing. So I became really interested in that and, and, and started working with that. And then this, uh, this e remarkable email came from the Rama family in LA saying they had this collection of images that they wanted to share in the archive. And then over a four-year period, I... I was so fortunate enough to meet this remarkable family <clears throat> in LA and uh, sort of explore the images they had and to extract what was what they called like a, a layer of the onion, you know, in understanding that their narrative of their act of burying their family photographs to protect their identity ahead of the Khmer Rouge uh, coming to their town surviving the Khmer Rouge and then later digging these images up and, and continuing to collect these images through the refugee camps. Their narrative, you know, in the wider sort of story of, of, um, of the refugee experience of Cambodians was, was a slice of it. You know, it, it doesn't attest to everyone, but it resonates with so many different people. So there was no other way in, in, in working with these images other than just getting to know a, a group of people. And, and when we started, I don't think we had any idea that it would be a book. Um, but what it does 
I think what Buried does is it conveys a very personal account of a horrendous event and shows before and after and this sort of um it doesn't just question the Cambodian um the Cambodian context itself, you know, Cambodia's context. It, it questions the idea of the refu- the status of refugees and the way in which people move from, you know, crisis or atrocity to to become refugees. And, and we, we only have to look around the world to see that's still, you know, a very difficult subject. So so buried in the personal actually conveyed a lot of wider conversations. Um and um and it was more organic. There was no intent. You know, it it became a book just because of the way that the images came together. Um and then we're having the family to be very active in the process and very embedded in the process has been, you know, remarkable. And and what happened as well in the sort of um process of working with them, which has been very different from anything I've done before, is in many ways the, the book is you know, is there and it's out and, and it still has its moments and it still sells. But we we sort of said when it was done, it was done. And what would what would um remain would be the friendship. Um which is far more valuable in many ways than the physicality of the book. And and I think for me it's just that's become what's important that I've been able to work with a family to share a complex conversation about something that I haven't experienced or never can really understand, but their authorship and involvement through their own family images tells us so much. That sounds absolutely amazing. Um, And it's also amazing to think that a series of uh, images, right, still images, can actually tell us um, about such a complex process, maybe something that words wouldn't narrate well at all just because there may not be uh, enough words to express that. I think what's really interesting about that point is, you know, um, that I've become very interested, particularly with working through Buried, about the relationship between image and text. See, Buried exists in its current form because um, when when we thought about putting it together as a book, I sequenced the work as best as I could from what I understood, and I sent this mock-up to the family. Uh, and I said, you know, make some notes, tell me what you think, do you like where the images sit, how, you know, how does this work? And they sent it back, and, and what they'd done is actually they'd written on every single image, and they filled in spaces of conversation that we hadn't had now. Why that happened and why they did that, um, I'm still not clear, um, but their their want to further expand on the image, I think, was really interesting because you know I could I didn't make the frames, you know a lot of the pictures were made by their family and mm. the family archive, you know, is very curated. All our family archives are curated. Uh, we we never see, you know, we very rarely see the moments of crying or you know you know arguments. We mm. only see the positive side. But what they did is they, they questioned that process by writing about the process and the trauma and, and parts of the loss. Um, so this really interesting debate between image and language appeared and it's really, you know, made me question what photography can and cannot do. But also the problems that I talked about earlier where 
a, a word where a photograph illustrates someone's work. So it's a very complex relationship between image and text. So I wanted to ask you about the ethical dimension of photography for you as a white male working in Cambodia. Mm. Um, how yeah. do you learn about context and ensure that the messages that you're bringing are the ones who the, the subjects actually um, would like you to, to bring? Yeah, it's, gosh, I mean, it's, it's such an important question. Um, and... And then how, I mean, when I started, I didn't know, you know, mm. I, I don't think I'd, I don't think it was at a time where I was as conscious of this because I was working for a paper, you know, I felt like that was the institution and that was probably the sense of the authority in making the work. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, that was, that was 15 years ago. So, I mean, I'm a very different person now, but mm. You know, I, I, you have to be open about the conversation about about what your role is, um, particularly as a white privileged male. You know, there is no doubt about that. So, so how do how do you work with that? Well, I think when I started working more for myself in in terms of questioning the practice, that it afforded me an autonomy to engaging conversations with with people such as the Ramas, but also with a very very um i'm very fortunate to work with some very interesting people in cambodia i mean two people who heavily influence in the past and to this day who've heavily influenced my practice are um Darate din who wrote one of the essays for buried um a young cambodian um writer who um, who we've become very good friends um, because of her honesty and um, a very wide approach um, to the representation of Cambodia and and she she questions me on you know on the work that I do mm. um, Lin Chan Soklina is a photographer in Cambodia whose work I've always admired and uh, and over time I've been able to meet and work with people who are who challenge me and question me on the things that I do and mm. and in that I challenge and question what I do and here's the thing you know with 15 years of doing it you know I work very slowly I put out really for the amount of time that I've been working there I put out very little work because I, I try to negotiate every step. I have to be conscious of how people will be viewed. I have to be conscious of the narratives that come out of work. And, and I have to ensure that, you know, the people who I work with are comfortable with the process. So I, I try and gauge it through spending time there, listening and observing, but also recognizing that there are voices that are proactive in my practice, um, external to me. Um, and I, and the thing about the work that I do, there's no, I don't challenge anyone. You know, I don't point a finger. I, 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 I can't, I don't believe in that. I believe in 
working within strands of conversation, looking for spaces between conversations where where work can appear and and raise new questions. Um, I, I I struggle a lot with the way that some work is approached, where it's confrontational um, and puts people on the spot. Where in somewhere like Cambodia, it's a process of just you know expanding on questions that, that say, for example, with the Rama family, people families want to understand. So mm. yeah, it's you know language, culture, time. Um, they're, they're all important aspects, and, and knowing my, my utter privilege as well is really important. Mm. I think about what the function of photographers or researchers are, and you know, and what we bring to conversations. And all communities deserve patience, respect, and understanding. And and I, I hope that the way in which I approach it is something that is um, that gives a perspective that maybe someone else couldn't tell. You know, or maybe someone else couldn't convey. And a very interesting photographer, Pete Penn, Cambodian American photographer, who I met in Cambodia last year, said something really interesting. He said, you know, it's about not taking opportunities from others. And that became really important to me, um, particularly moving back to the UK and working at Nottingham Trent, that I was finding ways of making work in Cambodia without taking opportunities from Cambodian photographers and creatives and, and that's something which has always been really important to me. I could listen and listen you know, you, you, you really made me think about a lot of things today Charles, um, just great Well hopefully it was all positive Thank you so much uh, it, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you um, it, wonderful, thank you I'm sure our listeners would enjoy it as much as we did Thank you Well, thank you all for being with us today and before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Disasters Decon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget... Disasters are not natural. See you next time. You've been listening to Ksenia, Jason and me, Charles Fox on Disasters Deconstructed Podcast.